0: Hi, and welcome to Figure of Speech, a program from WRBH where every week you can meet local poets and writers from the New Orleans community and listen to them share their work. Today, we're going to be having a special James Joyce edition of the program in honor of Bloomsday. June 16th is the annual celebration of Bloomsday, the date James Joyce sent Leopold Bloom and other Dublin denizens through the city's vertiginous streets in his genre-bending stream-of-consciousness novel, Ulysses. Bloomsday started out as a Dublin-only observance, but is now celebrated worldwide. New Orleans will be hosting our own Bloomsday celebration with readings in the French Quarter, Marigny, and Bywater, starting at 11 a.m. at Crescent City Books at 124 Barone Street. More information can be found on Facebook at Bloomsday New Orleans 2019. The organizer of our local festivities, Chris Lane, is going to be reading three selections related to the history of Ulysses and its legal and musical references. Take a listen.
1: Bloomsday has come around again, the day, June 16th, in 1904, on which all the events of James Joyce's great novel Ulysses unfold. 1904 was an auspicious year for Joyce. It may surprise some people to know that at this point, still only 22 years old, he had spent as much time and energy developing his musical skills as his literary ones. Joyce's childhood was saturated with music. His father was a noted singer and his mother a talented pianist. By the time he left University College Dublin, he was an accomplished singer. He knew most of the songs of Shakespeare's plays and many English folk songs collected by Cecil Sharp. When his mother died in 1903, a year of listless dissipation followed. He met and fell in love with Nora Barnacle. Their first date was on June 16, 1904. He flirted with a career in music, and she encouraged it. That spring, he had rented a flat large enough to hold a rented grand piano, and borrowed money to pay for singing lessons from the best teachers in Dublin. In May, he entered the male tenor competition in the Fisk Sussel, Dublin's annual music festival, following in the footsteps of the great John McCormick, the previous year's champion. He also made plans to tour the south of England performing English folk songs to holidaying audiences. He placed third in the festival's competition that year. He apparently did little to ingratiate himself with the adjudicators, refusing to sing the obligatory piece At Sight. Later in the year, he and Nora departed for Triste. He continued with vocal training there, but as his biographer Richard Elman writes, Joyce's ardor for singing career had already begun to lapse. The tedious discipline did not suit him, and to be a second McCormick was not so attractive as to be a first Joyce. But is it intriguing to think of Joyce going down a musical road? He certainly had the skills to be a professional musician, even though his voice was by many accounts not the most powerful of instruments. But as his life and fiction unfolded, we can see in Joyce a singer who took on the characteristics we associate with the truly authentic traditional singers of the 20th century. Traditional singers emphasize the organic, inseparable partnership of words and music, they prioritize personal communication over spectacle and they cultivate an awareness of the fluid nature of the boundaries between singer and audience, performance and non-performance. Expression is all, and technique secondary. Friends and critics alike were quick to notice the frailty in Joyce's voice, but could not deny that he was in command of ineffable qualities. It is always tempting to associate Joyce's literary modernism with musical modernism, or at least with the type of trained singing appreciated by the bourgeois. But in his life and fiction, Joyce celebrated and practiced a style located within the intimate scenes of social life, far from the stages of professional music-making. Yes, his great story, The Dead, is set in a musical household dedicated to art, music, and formal pedagogy. And the richly musical Sirens chapter of Ulysses is alleged to have been structured on the model of the Fuga percanonim. But it is easy to jump to conclusions quickly, in both these texts, Joyce draws subtle connections between authentic expression and weakness. His characters hint that starvation, age, sickness, and decrepitude are all preconditions for aesthetic success and authenticity. The Dead, a guest professional tenor, performs a song called The Lass of Agrim," that Joyce learned in traditional style at his mother-in-law's kitchen table. We read of the singer's retinence and the fragility of his voice as he suffers from a cold and that the story's ghostly Michael Fury, remembered through a dark film of rain and snow, also had a very good voice but delicate health. It is as if, in Joyce's imagination, these are complementary qualities. In Ulysses Siren's chapter, the characters remark on how starvation and poverty produce sublime vocal beauty. Bloom reflects while listening to the singers that one must be abstemious of to sing. Judy Lynn's Soup Stock, sage, raw eggs, half pint of cream. And a few minutes later, Ben Dollard tells Simon Dedalus, Seven days in jail on bread and water. Then you'd sing Simon like a garden thrush. What I see in the Sirens chapter is not a fugue, but something more like a traditional Irish session. In the song, episodes and melodies breathe in of an intertextual reality, drifting from one to the next and overlapping in Bloom's thoughts, linked by conversation and daydreaming just as they do during a great night of music in the pub. So among Joyce's many talents was his deep understanding of traditional song, not just its poetry and melody, but also its expression and its time and in place. If you are celebrating Bloomsday, perhaps leave the critiques of literary modernism to others for once and prepare a party piece in honor of one of Ireland's great traditional singers, James Joyce. The writing and publication history of Ulysses by James Joyce was shaped by individuals and organizations trying to censor it. Here is an excerpt from the monumental decision of the United States District Court rendered on December 2, 1933 by the Honorable John M. Wolseley lifting the ban on Ulysses. Part 4. In writing Ulysses, Joyce sought to make a serious experiment in a new, if not wholly novel, literary genre. He takes persons of the lower middle class living in Dublin in 1904, and seeks not only to describe what they did on a certain day early in June of that year as they went about the city, bent on their usual occupations, but also to tell what many of them thought about the while. Joyce has attempted, it seems to me with astonishing success, to show how the screen of consciousness, with its ever-shifting kaleidoscopic impressions carries, as it were on a plastic set, not only what is the focus of each man's observation of the actual things about him, but also, in a penumbral zone residue, of past impressions, some recent, some drawn up by association from the domain of the subconscious. He shows how each of these impressions affects the life and behavior of the character which he is describing. What he seeks to get is not unlike the results of a double or, if that is possible, a multiple exposure on a cinema film which would give a clear foreground with a background visible but somewhat blurred and out of focus in varying degrees. To convey by words an effect which obviously lends itself more appropriately to a graphic technique accounts, it seems to me, for much of the obscurity which meets a reader of Ulysses. It also explains another aspect of the book, which I have further to consider, namely Joyce's sincerity and his honest effort to show exactly how the minds of his characters operate. If Joyce did not attempt to be honest in developing the technique which he has adopted in Ulysses, the results would be psychologically misleading and thus unfaithful to his chosen technique. Such an attitude would be artistically inexcusable. It is because Joyce has been loyal to his technique and has not funked in its necessary implications, but has honestly attempted to tell fully what his characters think about, that he has been the subject of so many attacks, and that his purpose has been so often misunderstood and misrepresented. For his attempt sincerely and honestly to realize his objective has required him, incidentally, to use certain words which are not generally considered dirty words and has led at times to what many think is a too-poignant preoccupation with sex in the thoughts of his characters. The words which are criticized as dirty are old Saxon words, known to almost all men and, I venture, to many women, and are such words as would be naturally and habitually used, I believe, by the types of folks whose lives, physical and mental, Joyce is seeking to describe In respect of the recurrent emergence of the theme of sex in the minds of his characters, it must always be remembered that his locale was Celtic and his season spring. Whether or not one enjoys such a technique as Joyce uses it is a matter of taste on which disagreement or argument is futile. But to subject that technique to the standards of some other technique seems to me to be little short of absurd. Accordingly, I hold that Ulysses is a sincere and honest book, and I think that the criticisms of it are entirely disposed of by its rationale. Music in Ulysses The numerous musical references scattered throughout Joyce's masterpiece play a strong central role in advancing the narrative and enhance both the effectiveness and the expressiveness of the stream-of-consciousness technique employed in the book. We come to know the characters in the book by their actions, words, thoughts, and memories. But it can be well argued that we come to understand them by their individual tastes in music and the melodies that flit through their minds in the course of the day. A number of the songs mentioned or alluded to in the book have been recorded on the recently released CD More Music from the Works of James Joyce, including Songs in the Shade of the Palm, In Old Madrid, The Lost Chord, my Lady's Bower, Shall I Wear a White Rose, What Ho, She Bumps. Below is a sampling of additional songs used by Joyce in Ulysses and performed on Sunphones Records' first CD release, along with commentary on their importance to the action of the story. Silent O' Moyle. There is a glancing reference to this Thomas More melody in the Skyla and Charybdis episode of Ulysses. It figures much more prominently in the Dubliner short story, Two Gallants. The song, Love's Old Sweet Song. This is one of the most frequently referred to and significant musical allusions throughout Ulysses. Molly Bloom will be singing this song on her concert tour with the Blazes Boylan, and indeed, the afternoon liaison between her and Blazes is ostensibly for the purpose of rehearsing the music for that concert, including this song. Bloom learns that the song will be included in the concert tour early in the morning, and it serves throughout his day in the novel Ulysses both as a leitmotif of Molly's adultery and as the theme song of their potential reconciliation with Broom. Love's Old Sweet Song This is one of the most frequently referred to and significant musical allusions throughout Ulysses. Molly Bloom will be singing this song on her concert tour with Blazes Boylan and indeed, the afternoon liaison between her and Blaze's is ostensibly for the purpose of rehearsing the music for that concert, including this song. Bloom learns that the song will be included in the concert tour early in the morning, and it serves throughout his day and the novel Ulysses both as a le motif of Molly's adultery and as the theme song of her potential reconciliation with Bloom. and Bloom Laid This is a song Bloom buys for his daughter Millie when she is taking piano lessons. Known in English as The Flower Song, it is tied to Bloom's pen name, Henry Flower, which he uses in his clandestine correspondences with Martha Clifford. It is one of a number of Flower references throughout Ulysses. Seaside Girls This cheerful ditty is perhaps the most frequently mentioned song in Ulysses. Millie's morning letter to Bloom erroneously refers to the song as having been written by Blazes Boylan, and Bloom associates the song with Boylan throughout much of the rest of the book. It becomes the motif of the universal temptress figure leading all men to their eventual destruction. Most of the subsequent references to the song in Ulysses are made by Bloom, who, of course, is never far from female temptation. My girl's a Yorkshire girl. This song is first associated with Blazes Boylan, who steps to the catchy refrain as he marches down the street. We hear the song later played on the pianola in Bella Cohn's brothel during the Circe episode, where it is linked with Privates Carr and Compton, two British soldiers who eventually get into an altercation with an inebriated Stephen Dedalus. The song features two young men discussing their girls. In the course of the conversation, they find out that the respective girls share similar characteristics. Inevitably, it turns out they are both talking of the same girl. And to make matters worse, the lads, who've decided to pay her a visit, are greeted at the door by her husband, who chases them off with his own rendition of the chorus of the song. Obviously, the song furthers the Odyssean theme of a universal temptress, suitors, and a husband who reclaims his right to her. In this way, it is a direct parallel to the main dilemma of Ulysses. The Holy City This song is first alluded to in Joyce's earlier abortive novel, Stephen Hero, where Father Moran advises Stephen to learn the song. It assumes major significance, however, in the Circe chapter of Ulysses, where Bloom fantasizes about becoming the leader of a new celestial golden city, the new Blulusulum, As Bella Cohen's gramophone blares out the song, Bloom's great edifice is erected and we get a comic parody look at what the new city of Dublin would be like under Bloom as an all-supreme ruler. Maapari, or Martha. This is the title song from the Floto opera Martha. In the Sirens episode of Ulysses, Bloom hears the song sung by Simon Dedalus in the Ormond Bar just as Bloom is at the low point of his day, the hour of Molly's assignation with Boylan. Bloom is in the process of writing a letter to Martha Clifford and, as Simon sings the words, each line is compared to an event in Bloom and Molly's history through Bloom's stream of conscious thought. Bloom then notes the coincidence between the song title and the name of his pen pal, Martha Clifford which effectively means that all of Bloom's love life is somehow tied up with the words and music sung by his curious counterpart in fatherhood, Simon Dedalus. The words on this recording are the words of Charles Jeffrey's English version, which Simon sings in Ulysses. The Bloom is on the Rye. One aspect of Joyce's application of musical form to Ulysses is his use of repeated phrases to indicate particular characters or plot issues, a technique borrowed from the operas of Richard Wagner. This song serves as the musical signature or low motif of Leopold Bloom throughout the Sirens episode, the most musical chapter of the novel. The Low-Backed Car Written and performed by Samuel Lover in the mid-19th century one-man show Irish Evening, this song was old and beloved by Joyce's day. The principal appearance in Ulysses occurs right at the end of the Ulysses chapter. This song's mixture of high language with low subject matter and the arch blink-and-you'll-miss-it double entendre of pole-slash-pole no doubt recommended it to Joyce as an apt recessional for the evening's festivities. The Croppy Boy One of the major musical themes running throughout Ulysses, this song gathers many large issues. Ireland's tortured political history, Roman Catholicism, divided loyalty, betrayal and Christ-like self-sacrifice into one bundle, ripe for Joyce's elaboration. This song dates the rebellion of 1798. Like their hoped-for French allies, the most ardent Irish revolutionaries wore their hair short, i.e. cropped, an emulation of the virtuous Republican Romans. Stephen Dedalus shares a similarity with the song's protagonist by failing to pray for his mother, even on her deathbed. This thought will come back to haunt him literally, at the climax of the Circe chapter.
0: That was Chris Lane reading a few essays about James Joyce and the history of Ulysses. Just another reminder, there will be events happening all June 16th surrounding Bloomsday in New Orleans, and more information about that can be found on Facebook by searching Bloomsday New Orleans 2019. And that's our show. You've been listening to Figure of Speech, a community poetry and writing program from WRBH. Tune in Saturdays at 1 p.m. and every Monday at 9 p.m. for more great New Orleans writing. Thanks for listening.